Welcome to Start, Scale, Sustain, a story-driven podcast for the nonprofit leader and entrepreneur. I'm your producer, Molly Heacock, and I'm joined today by co-founder and CEO of Care for AIDS, Justin Miller. Thanks, Molly. We're, we're going to try to tackle a big topic today, which is organizational culture, which is very ambiguous and abstract sometimes. So we're going to try to put some more concrete ideas around this and what we're learning at Care for AIDS and how we're trying to build a culture that attracts and retains and develops the best talent possible. So this is the second episode in the sustain portion of the podcast. And last week we talked a little bit about self-leadership. And this week, organizational culture is, you're right, such a huge topic and we hear it all the time. So let's start off with defining just what is, what are we talking about when we talk about organizational culture? Well, I would define culture as the norms and the values that really inform how people behave within an organization. We, we have the, the spoken or the formal values that we say, hey, this is what our organization values. But there are other things in terms of power and symbols and behaviors within the organization that are often unspoken or informal, but they are the things that drive how people relate to one another and how they behave. And you can talk about values all you want, but until the people in the organization are actually embodying those values, that's really the culture that matters. And that's the one that is going to drive your organization. So um, it is it is more than just kind of putting a list of inspirational words on a values sheet and hanging it on the wall. Um, it is is actually... Uh, on the ground, what is happening and how people are behaving and relating to one another in the organization. Well, today we're going to really dig into organizational culture, how to create it, how to maintain it. Um, And we've got seven points that we're really going to talk through. And we're going to talk through a lot of the stories from the history of Care for AIDS and from present day of what we've struggled with organizational culture wise when it comes to the U.S. team versus the Kenya team and having so many different people and different cultures within one organizational culture. Um, So Justin, kick us off with these these seven stories. Well, first of all, I'll say, Molly, that in this season of Care for AIDS, it feels like we are having to fight harder than ever to preserve the culture that we believe makes Care for AIDS so unique. In seasons where your organization is growing as much as we are, where we're adding 25 or 30 new staff a year, this is the time where your culture can start to creep and you can start to um, lose that unique dynamic and DNA that existed in the beginning because you're introducing so many new people and parties into the organization. And if you're not very ferocious even on trying to define your culture and make sure that it is embodied throughout the organization, this is going to be um, a challenge as organizations grow as quickly as Care Freights has grown. I would say the first thing that you have to do is you have to define your culture. And a lot of people define their culture in terms of the things that they value. And I don't think that's a bad place to start. We did that at Care for AIDS, and we've already talked a little bit about this in an earlier episode. We talked about the fact that we value results and relationships, and that we value innovation and excellence. And that was a that was a great practice for us. But when you really start to think about how people are going to implement those values and how they're going to behave in response to those, those 
are just a little bit too abstract for people to really embrace. So what we did really at the um, following the example of the North Point Community Church model, we said, let's try to translate those values into some behaviors that we as a staff can can covenant to each other that we are going to try to behave in this way. And this is going to be a lot easier to identify when people are upholding these behaviors and um, evaluate people on how they're doing in these behaviors. So we went through a process over um, many weeks trying to talk about what were the behaviors that we wanted to be reflected in our culture. And as Andy Stanley talks about with their process, he says the process is often more important than the product. And I think it was for us too, just the wrestling through what's important and what makes this final list. And uh, we even borrowed a couple of these from North Point because we felt like after we went through this whole discussion, they were still, um, they were appropriate behaviors for what we wanted our culture to embody. So just really quickly, we're not going to talk at length about these, but we came up with six organizational behaviors that we wanted all of our staff, both in the U.S. and the Kenya and Tanzania as well, to um, constantly try to live out in their work. They are make it better, constantly having an eye towards improving our programs and our processes in any way they see every day. Stay focused is a big one for us. We already talked about that on the podcast a couple weeks ago. Three is to be healthy, knowing that we are only as good as our ability to take care of ourselves. And we talked about that as well last week. The fourth one is to take it personally, that there's a sense of ownership and pride in the work of Care for AIDS and that you carry the Care for AIDS brand beyond your work every day. And we want you to, to feel like it's something that you have some responsibility for an agency over in how you reflect Care for AIDS. Grow continuously. We've talked a lot about this as well, that we want this to, to be something that we all have a constant pursuit of personal and professional growth. And it doesn't necessarily mean that Care for AIDS is always going to be growing continuously, although we aspire to that. Um, this is more about the personal activity of growing. And the last one, which maybe is my favorite, is to help others win. And this is kind of a, a nod to the culture of servant leadership that we want to create, um, where we're not just helping people internally win, but also trying to help people outside of Care for AIDS be successful, our donors and other organizations that many would see as competitors, but we really see as cooperators in this greater effort to advance our faith as well as to alleviate human suffering in on this planet. So we want those values to be translated into those behaviors and for our staff to live those out. And I think since we've defined them and continue to talk about them all the time, I think we have a lot um, better idea of what kind of culture that we want to create. So that's a fantastic first point. You've got to define it so that you can actually know when you're achieving it and when you're not. Um, so after we define our organizational culture, what's that next step? This next step may not feel like it's exactly in consecutive order because this is really something that has to be happening all the time. And it's really the practice of selecting people that fit your culture and being very committed to this idea that it is not acceptable to just hire people that are 
that are competent at their work, but that they share those same values. It is going to be very hard to, to reshape somebody's uh, commitment to personal growth or to work-life balance. Like you can teach that and you can train that, but it's more ideal for your organization if you can bring somebody in that already has those same um, cultural values and then you can focus on helping them develop the skills needed to do their job really, really well. So selection in terms of culture is one of the levers that you need to be able to pull as you still try to do things internally to reinforce and cultivate culture. You have to set yourself up for success by selecting the right people to join the team in the first place. All right. So we've defined culture and now we're, we're just consistently finding and hiring people who fit into that culture. What's next after that? Molly, this kind of goes without saying, but you really have to model the culture that you want to create. I mean, you've mentioned it before that, you know, we always tell people do as I say, not as I do, but people are always watching the leader and they're always um, imitating what the leader is doing. And they're trying to honestly guess what's important to the leader because they want to, to do the thing that they think will win them the most favor with the person they're following. So if you are not um, being the example for your culture, that is going to be the quickest way to undermine all of this work. It doesn't matter what you define as your culture or your organizational behaviors if you're not willing to actually live them out and practice them. And, uh, and that's where if I tell people that I want them to take time off and spend time with their families and be healthy, but I'm not willing to do that myself because I'm working at all hours, that is completely undermining um, our organizational behaviors. Or if I am not committed to continue to grow all the time, I'm just coasting in my personal growth, then people will say, you know what, the work product is more important than personal growth. And I'm going to spend my time on that because that seems to be what's important to Justin. And so you just have got to commit to modeling these behaviors as a leader. This is so great because, you know, we're seeing last week, we talked all about self-leadership and you can see so obviously how that plays into creating culture, because if you're not as a leader leading yourself, and like you said, modeling these behaviors, that's where it all starts to break down. So you can see kind of, as we discuss these topics, how they all really blend together um, throughout the life of an organization. All right. So we, we've defined the culture We're hiring people who fit within that culture we've defined Uh, Most importantly, we as leaders are modeling that culture. What's next? The next one is to really train your people on these behaviors and to just assume that because they've been spoken and because they've been modeled, that that's going to mean that people are going to actually know how to practice them. That doesn't necessarily be, that's not always the case. And this is true of, of what we've been trying to do with our staff in Kenya. We want our staff in Kenya to be healthy but there's a lot of things in the culture there that are working against them. They have so many people and groups that are competing for their time. Their, their relatives are wanting their money to help them with different things. And they are staff don't really have a, an idea about how to, to manage their finances because everything in Kenya is about, um, you know, using what you have to, to benefit the community. And it's really a, you know, it's a very self-sacrificing community, but 
our staff don't have any boundaries because they give themselves so fully to their family and to their church. And that's their time. That's their finances. And so when we talk about being healthy, when we started working with our staff in Kenya, I don't think they understood how to understand their priorities, whether that's their family, that's their health, that's their finances, and to build a plan around how to manage those appropriately. So we've had to spend a lot of time to train them on what does it look like to, as we talked about before on this podcast, to talk about managing your life. And that's been a big area of training for them. And, and this goes for all of the, the areas that we try to enforce our uh, organizational behaviors. We have to talk about them and train people. How do you make it better? How do you focus on continuous improvement in the midst of trying to fulfill your day-to-day tasks, but always looking for ways that you can uh, tinker with what CareFrades is doing to make it better. So those are some things you have to do to just continue to train your people on these behaviors. Yeah. Training is, is such a huge thing. And I, I can tell it's something that you value in our culture, both in the U S and in Kenya. Um, so again, we've defined culture. We're hiring people who fit into that culture. We're modeling the culture as leaders and we're continuously training those people who we hire and who are already in the organization on how to actually live out those organizational behaviors that create culture. What comes after that? This next one is to institutionalize it. And really the training piece is an event. And we, we know that events are important. They instruct and they inspire, but it's really the process that's related to that event that actually makes the biggest difference. So we teach our clients how to create a life plan so they can manage their priorities better. But then if there's really not a structure or a system to help follow up with them, then a lot of that just gets pushed out in the busyness of their lives. And so there's a lot of examples about how we can institutionalize these practices. There's so many stories here. I love one example. It's not even of, of Care for AIDS, another organization that we love, which is Hope International. You know, they have a, I don't know if they would say it the same way, but they have a similar value of helping others win. And they've institutionalized it to the point where they say to all their staff, you have to spend X number of hours and X number of dollars every year investing yourself into other organizations outside of hope. So they have said, this is not just a suggestion. This is part of who we are and we're going to build it into our planning and budgeting process. And that's, that's an awesome example for me. Uh, I also think that we've done this with growing continuously that we've not only said, Hey, we encourage you to go back to school and continue your education, but we've said, Hey, now we have a scholarship program. And if you are, have been accepted into a program and you're committed to go back to school, you can apply to receive a scholarship. And we have anywhere from 30 or 40 staff now every year who are receiving um, a portion or the full amount of their school paid for because they've committed to grow continuously. So we've taken these behaviors from just good suggestions to actually ways that have been institutionalized in care for AIDS. And then the, the last story I'll share, which is, you know, uh, we laugh about it now. I, re- I don't remember finding the humor in it when it first happened, but <laughs> We really, we recognized that our staff was not um, being as responsible with their finances as we wanted them to be. And we hadn't trained them very well. They didn't, and I don't fault them for that, but it had become a practice every year where 
uh, I would get together in December and I would give them a, a small envelope that would have, you know, um, the equivalent of like 30 or 40 bucks in it as a kind of a Christmas bonus. And that was the, I was the guy with the brown envelopes. I mean, that was, you know, the guy that brought the money. It was like Santa Claus to these, these staff. And, um, I always tucked the envelope within like a leadership book. I'm sure the leadership book got, you know, thrown to the side as they, they quickly searched for this, this envelope. But, you know, we realized that our staff did not have a long view of their finances. They were, you know, spending their paychecks before it got time for the next paycheck. And that's just how it was. There were so many people asking them for support that they just didn't know how to properly manage their funds. And, um, we were off, we were hearing stories that these bonuses were not being used very well. So we tried to figure out how do we make it part of our institutional process to help our staff? How do we help train them on how to manage their finances better, but also maybe set up some, some, institutional practices that could help facilitate that. And so one year we decided that we were going to uh, trade in their Christmas bonus for a larger investment into a retirement fund that they would be able to access upon their departure from Care for AIDS. And so it, it looked great on paper. It was like, you know, we're going to give you almost twice as much money, but we're going to put it in this place that's going to to build interest and can be used in, you know, whatever need that may exist in the future. And that's just something that they had not ever been exposed to before. So I stood up and I, I tried to to summon my best vision for the staff in Kenya about why this was such a great idea. And I even had envelopes still that instead of the money in them, it had a little certificate saying, this is how much money has been contributed into an account for your access. And I, I, I cast vision and said why it was so good. And and how this was a benefit to them. And, uh, and I remember just looking at this room of just solemn faces <laughs> and one kind soul tried to, to, to redeem this situation and, and started a, a slow clap, uh, for me as I was speaking that no one, uh, that no on. one else joined <laughs> in on. So I, I felt, you know, affirmed by one person, but the rest of the staff looked you know, devastated that we had, uh, had robbed them of their, of their bonus. And, um, it was a, it was a low point for me, uh, even though the leadership was fully behind the decision. And, and I say that story and we, we laugh about it today because now five years later, our staff has invested tens of thousands of dollars into these accounts that are preparing them for the future. And it's become part of our culture, which doesn't exist anywhere else in Kenya, that our staff want to save and invest for, they want to buy a piece of land in the future and they need to save for it. They want to send their kids to college. And nobody was thinking about that five years ago. And so there was a painful story there to start that process, but we wanted to create something in our, to institutionalize this practice of being healthy financially. And we were able to, I think, ultimately accomplish the goal that we wanted to, but, uh, stealing Christmas that year was, <laughs> was a low point in my leadership. It was my favorite year, the year that Justin canceled Christmas for the Kenyans. <laughs> uh, it's such a great story though, because it is, it's the institutionalization of the concept we talked about last week of put your own oxygen mask on before you help others and institutionalizing that financial health through care for AIDS in the long run will 
and has allowed our staff members to help so many more of their family members and community members than they ever could have by just spending up their paycheck every month. So that kind of um, the safety net that we've helped create through institutionalizing that part of our culture has been huge. All right. So once again, running through these, these seven points, we've got define the culture, hire the people who fit that culture, model that culture as a leader, train your people and how to behave in the cultural way that we, uh, that we've defined, and then institutionalize that in some really practical ways. What's our next point? The next one is, is that we have to listen to our people and to our culture, and we have to find the mechanisms to be able to do that. And that was very easy for us when we were a team of uh, 10 or 20. Uh, now that we're a team of 130, it has gotten really difficult to listen well to what's going on. And as a leader, it's so important because we might deceive ourselves in thinking that we've we've talked about our culture, we've, we've modeled it, we've defined it, but we really don't know um, how to measure it. Or are we deceived in thinking that it's actually happening, but when you get down to the front lines, there's actually different behaviors that are taking place there. And there are a lot of ways to, to do this, but for us, we just went through a organization-wide employee engagement survey. And that's just the beginning. You have to take that information, which is very quantitative, and actually dig into it and go and do you know, listening groups where you're hearing the staff talk about the challenges they're facing. But, you know, we can learn from that report that, you know what, they are, they're, they're not feeling that we are communicating well um, to them. They don't know why decisions are being made and we need to, to fix that part of our culture and that they don't see that there's as much transparency about from the leadership about why things are being done the way they are. So, you know, we really learned from that, that, that communication is a big gap for us right now, helping listen to what they, their input into our process and our organization. And also then when decisions are made, actually helping communicate why we're doing those things. So that's just one way that we're trying to make care for AIDS better. But if, as you grow, if you forget to find ways to listen to your people, um, you will become more and more isolated as the leader and it's people don't want to bring the leader really bad news. And so you become very insulated against the, the hard feedback and the things in the culture that aren't going well. And you could go on for many years without, uh, understanding the true reality of what's happening in your culture. Yeah, that's huge. Um, you've talked about it before as kind of the proximity principle. If you're not close to the people on the front lines, if you're not close to the clients, if you don't listen and allow those people to interact with you as a leader really consistently, you have no idea that the organization could be imploding and uh, you just think everything's great. Um, so after listen, kind of the, the seventh, the final point about how to maintain good organizational culture um, finish us out with that, that last point. Yeah. I think you have to, to both celebrate those people in your culture that are living this out really well, but you also have to defend, um, your culture against people who are trying to undermine it. And I think when you celebrate people, we do that both privately by acknowledging people, writing them notes, pulling them aside and 
identifying the times when they've done this really, really well. We do it publicly by, we have a, an award ceremony in Kenya every year where we uh, give our staff uh, trophies and awards for uh, living out these values in a way that has been very um, evidenced by their example in the organization. And and then you have to be willing to to believe so strongly in your culture that you're willing to defend it at all costs, which means at times losing people who are good performers, but that don't live up to the culture that you uh, want to create. And we've had, unfortunately, to let people go, especially on our, our Kenyan staff, which we have a lot more people there, which is why we don't, we don't have to do that as often here, thankfully. But there are people at times who we've said, you know, you are just, you know, you are a good individual performer, but your values are not aligned with us. And we're so strict about policing our culture that we, we have to let you go. And, and you, you just have to have the courage as a leader to be able to do that. Because if you are soft on that and you bring people into it and you let it slide when people violate your culture, you know, ultimately long-term you're going to pay the price of people really not believing that, um, that what you say you value, that you really value it. And so you have to be willing to enforce your culture in that way. These are all fantastic. So we've got these, these really seven amazing ways to create and maintain healthy organizational culture. Um, just to say them all one more time, we've got to define that culture. We've got to hire people who fit into that culture. We've got to, as leaders, model that culture continuously provide opportunities to train our staff, both old and new, on how to behave in those behavioral ways um, that define culture. You've got to institutionalize culture. You've got to listen to your people to make sure that what we think is happening is actually happening. And then you've got to celebrate the people who really lean into the culture and defend against the people who don't. So these are huge lessons that leaders can take and, and work through over time in their organizations. But if you had one last kind of bite-sized piece of wisdom for our listeners about organizational culture, what would that be? It would just be that the leader cannot delegate culture. Um, this is the thing that the leader has to do more than anything else. You can delegate a lot of different responsibilities to those that are, are around you. But if you at the top of the organization are not willing to be responsible for culture building and doing all these things we just talked about, then ultimately I think your effort to create the culture that you desire is, is probably going to fail. So just don't underestimate the importance of culture and what it does for your organization's performance, what it does for the people in your organization and uh, continue to relentlessly pursue a strong culture. And that's the responsibility of the leader. Thanks so much, Justin. Um, as always, if you as listeners have any questions or want to continue this conversation with Justin, you can contact him at justintmiller.com or on social media. Next week, we'll be wrapping up our conversation about sustaining an organization. So we look forward to talking to you then.